1: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and I'm a host on New Books in Sociology. This is a channel on the New Books Network, and today I have Dr. Jermaine Aligua with me today to discuss her book, The Digital City, Media and the Social Production of Place, which is a book published by New York University Press, otherwise known as NYU Press. Dr. Aligua is an assistant professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies. She received her Master's of Arts degree and Ph.D. from the Media and Cultural Studies program in the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She has experienced working with a variety of media industries, including magazine, TV, and video production. Before coming to Kansas University, Dr. Haliqua spent a summer with the Social Media Collective at Microsoft Research New England, working on projects related to location-based social media and a mobile media. She currently teaches classes about digital media and society, digital storytelling, qualitative methods for digital media research, media, space, and place, and television studies. Her research interests focus on the relationships between people, place, and digital media. In particular, she is interested in how visions of digital media by public officials and urban planners often conflict with vernacular imaginations and actual uses of digital technologies. Her more recent projects... Investigate digital placemaking, smart cities, and testbed cities, experience of digital infrastructure, social media and neighborhood contexts, and social production of place and identity online. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Heligua.
2: Oh, yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, to begin, uh, what is
1: this thing called placemaking?
2: So that's a big question to start with, but I like it. Um, so placemaking is typically understood as a people-centered or community-centered approach to the design of physical spaces, like public spaces. And this is mainly how placemaking is understood by planning professionals and architects, I'd say. Um, but Like, for example, when people refer to something like creative placemaking, which I discuss in chapter five, they're talking about bringing artists and community stakeholders together in conversation with one another to change public spaces or cities or towns in which they live in through arts and creative strategies or initiatives. And as I talk about in the last chapter of the book, a lot of those initiatives are about physical space or changing physical space or building um, different sort of infrastructures or building um, physical buildings or studio spaces. But when I talk about placemaking, I mean something a little bit more than this. So um, geographers like uh, Timothy Cresswell and other geographers, other cultural studies scholars talk about placemaking in a slightly different way on like a smaller scale or within more intimate or quotidian situations of everyday life. So one of my favorite examples is, um, and I think this is in one of Tim Cresswell's books, actually, and maybe I like it because I'm on a university campus, is thinking about decorating a dorm room or really like any room as a placemaking practice. So for example, I I just moved into a new office um, down the street from my old office, but I come into this new office and it's completely empty, almost, right? I mean, there's a desk, there's some furniture, but any sort of semblance that somebody else was here are just left in these tiny little traces found around the room. Like maybe there's a thumbtack on the wall or there's like a scratch in the table or there's a stain from a coffee cup. So there's these sort of traces of personalization and traces of customization of where somebody came into this office at one point and dwelled here for a while and lived here and worked here and experienced this as a place that was familiar to them and a place that they um, kind of practiced their everyday life. And that I think is also a process and a practice of placemaking, taking something that feels somewhat abstract or interchangeable or unrecognizable maybe, and then making it your own. So in this sort of way of thinking about placemaking, placemaking encapsulates like the practices and processes of making spaces meaningful. And that's a very general description But it's about taking these abstract spaces and making them mean something to you, having some sort of subjective emotional or physical attachment or psychological, rather, attachment to these places. So in the book, I also consider placemaking in relationship to how other scholars like Doreen Massey and Raymond Williams think about place. And I think it was Raymond Williams who talked about place as a space that you can tell stories about. But I think it's more that place becomes like a space that is dynamic and comes alive with various constantly evolving histories and interpretations. So many of the stories that I tell in this book are about geographies of privilege and innovation, but also histories and stories and narratives about geographies of difference and inequity. So in the book, I'm thinking about place and place making as processes that incorporate positions of race, class, gender into the production of places. So thinking about things like power geometries of place that Doreen Massey talks about, um, like geography, that this idea that geography and mobility are both shaped by and reproduce power differentials or power differences in society. Um, Another way to think about this might be like that who you are is shaped, shapes and is shaped by how we experience socially Produ- produced places and how much influence or control different actors with, within different positions of power have on coordinating these flows or mobilities or connections. Um, another thing that I write about in the book, and I particularly like this is the way that uh, architects, I think one is a landscape architect and one is an architect and urban planner, a uh, Cloth and Shibley discuss place making. And they talk about it as something akin to, um, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something akin to um, the ongoing labor of people that makes and cares for places or transforming the places in which we find ourselves into the places in which we dwell or live. And as architects, landscape architects and architects and planners, uh, Cloth, and Shibley, they're talking about design interventions and collaborations between communities and planning or design professionals in physical spaces. And I think that one of the main contributions of my book is an examination of something I call digital placemaking, or what I've called replacing the city which is meant to describe the ways that people imagine and utilize affordances of digital technologies to produce a sense of place for themselves and others. And sometimes this is very positive, And sometimes this is actually kind of reinforcing exclusion or spaces of privilege and ostracizing some marginalized or minority communities. And we could talk about that more as the interview goes on, I think. But um, digital placemaking, then, typically refers to the use of social media or some sort of online survey or interactive response system to gather or listen, gather information from residents or like listen to what residents think about a certain place or some redevelopment project or something like that. So that's typically how digital placemaking is thought of. So I didn't coin that term. This is a term that's been circulating in both scholarly literature and in um, professional practices, but I've coined this term replacing in order to refer to a different type of digital placemaking and in a very different way. So about the role that digital media play in remaking or reproducing place. So in replacing, unlike this sort of idea of digital placemaking is using social media to poll people or to survey people about what they think of physical places or design projects or like in a participatory planning sort of way, I'm thinking about replacing as a form of digital placemaking that is about harnessing the affordances of digital media in order to produce a sense of place for oneself or others.
1: So they're not working, working uh, in a mutually exclusive way. It appears that they may be reinforcing one another. Am I correct in my interpretation of, of what you're saying?
2: I mean, potentially, except that I don't want um, to think about digital placemaking as exclusively about social media or exclusively about um, interfacing with design professionals or planning professionals. I want to think about it as larger than that, as encapsulating these sort of quotidian experiences of everyday life where we grab our cell phone And we uh, take a selfie and we post it on Instagram in a particular location and we announce that location to others. And I want to think of that as digital placemaking as well, or uh, building a municipal Wi-Fi network with other community members who lack Internet access and that that shows maybe an investment or caring about place. That I want to also think about is digital placemaking. So I think they're not, I think you're right. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I think that replacing encapsulates the typical connotations around digital placemaking, where um, the way that digital placemaking is used in sort of more professional conversations around planning wouldn't necessarily encompass all of the other activities that I'm considering digital placemaking to be as well.
1: And I think maybe this is a good time to, uh, talk a little bit further about your, uh, about one case study that you used in your book. And and that was Kansas city, uh, right. That was one of your major folk, uh, a major focus of part of your book.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I've written about, um, the Kansas city example in other places as well, but, um, yeah, I could talk a little bit about Google fiber in Kansas city. That's what that chapter is about. Um, And I think that chapter is chapter two. It's called The Connected City. But um, just a little background on that, too. Like I moved to Lawrence, Kansas in 2011, which coincided with I think the first few years of Google Fibers for Community Projects, which later became the Google Fiber Project, it's just a different name for it. Um, So in 2010, just the year before I moved to Kansas and the Kansas City area, Google announced that it would build an experimental gigabit network in one U.S. city. And they didn't say which one. And instead of picking it on their own, they held a competition where different cities were competing for the sort of privilege to host this gigabit network, high-speed gigabit network. So in 2011, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, both won this bid to be the testbed for Google Fiber and um, fulfilled these sort of promises of transformation and makeover that Google promised Kansas City. It was promising to sort of, you know, make this an exceptional place through this high-speed connection. And a year later, after I moved here in 2012, they utilized this participatory infrastructure implementation model where neighborhoods, which they called fiberhoods, had to pre-register in mass in order to qualify to have uh, Google fiber come to their neighborhood. And I have an article about this process as well. So I'm not going to get into it too much here, but it, it was published in the international journal of cultural cities. Um, if listeners are curious about that and want to take a look, but um One of the aspects of this participatory process was that you had to get your neighbors to sign up. You had to recruit neighbors to sign up um, and also to pre-register by giving $10 or paying $10 so that your neighborhood would qualify to get this high speed network in your area. And it also came along with this one-time fee of $300, a construction fee to activate the network, signing up for service, things like that. Um, But A lot of neighborhoods did sign up through this pre-registration period. And halfway through, I think about this uh, pre-registration period, they mapped, Google mapped the neighborhoods that met the pre-registration goal or quota to get fiber in their neighborhoods. And these maps were displayed online. And after the first round of signups, the maps that were shown on the website were Split in half, so it was a map of Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas. And the map of Kansas City, Missouri, was sort of cut bifurcated, and half of the um, half of the city was in one color. I think it was green to indicate that they would um, get Google Fiber, and then the other half was yellow, which means that they they didn't quite yet qualify. And I think these maps were meant, maybe in some way, to like motivate people to keep signing up, and also to show people like this is where you your neighborhood is and this is where you are in terms of getting fiber or not and the significance of these maps was almost immediately evident to you if you were familiar with kansas city missouri and i was only just recently familiar with the geography and sort of cultural geography of kansas city and i was struck by these maps so the line between the above goal and below goal ran through um it ran like along this avenue called Troost Avenue, which is historically a dividing line that's colloquially referred to. I've heard it referred to as the Troost Wall that has served as an economic and racial dividing line for decades. And it separated. So these maps separated the Western sections from the Eastern sections. And the Eastern sections were the ones that weren't quite qualifying for Google Fiber just yet. And uh, the green were. And so a lot of, um, also on these maps, there were apartments, you know, you search for apartment buildings and uh, places with high poverty rates in Kansas city. And these places were not connected. They were not showing that they were going to get connection. So after these maps were released um, and actually, I don't know if I mentioned, I might've just mentioned in my own head and not out loud that so the Eastern part of the map, the part that relied on the Eastern Part of Kansas City, um, alongside Truse Avenue, is predominantly has been predominantly African American and lower income, and um, maybe more uh, apartment buildings, but also higher poverty poverty rates in the Kansas City area. And then the west side was more affluent, um, almost suburban type homes and wealthier, more educated populations, according to sort of census data. So after these maps were released, I became more interested in these digital divides that were layered on top of these pre existing divides that we've known about for years. So I saw this as a further networking those people in places who are already networked, who are already connected, um, who are already valued in certain ways as urban residents, who already had um, more access to urban resources. And that this new layering of um, digital, digital connection, high speed digital connection, was further emphasizing previously existing inequalities, and that these inequalities became re-inscribed through digital infrastructure into place and space. And that was definitely a different sort of transformation than Google was expecting. And I wanted to, and it was a different transformation than I was expecting as well, to be quite honest. I thought a lot of people would sign up. And I thought that um, this might be a low cost sort of affordable network solution to digital divides within the area. So I wanted to explore the reasons why people didn't sign up for affordable high-speed internet access. And I wasn't alone in this. Other researchers were very interested in this. And also um, Google was very interested in this. The Kansas City mayor's office was very interested in finding out as well. And um, the mayor, his uh, bi-state innovation team conducted a survey in 2012, I think, with the assistance of Google. And one of the things that struck me about this survey was that it noted a lack of relevance to be a key factor in why people didn't sign up for Google Fiber. And this idea of relevance is actually um, reiterated in other surveys. It comes up in Pew Research surveys. It comes up in other research surveys on digital divides. But what was striking to me was that Kansas City ranked higher than the national average in the not relevant to my daily life category. And I thought that was curious and I wanted to understand like what this kind of somewhat vague category of relevance meant and what it meant in this particular case and what were some of the intervening factors other than cost and education, which is what we would expect to come up as intervening factors for why somebody doesn't opt into or sign up for internet service. Um, how there might be other intervening factors that shaped residents' desires not to sign up for what seemed to be an affordable Google Fiber service. And I found that there were factors other than cost that indicated that Google Fiber wasn't wasn't for populations who lived on the east side of Truist Avenue. And a lot of these populations on the east side of Truist Avenue also didn't have at-home, stable at-home internet connection um, as well. So I was curious about which networks underserved communities chose to subscribe to, or why they didn't subscribe to certain networks at all, like in the Google Fiber case, and what shaped this sort of decision? What sort of factors shaped this decision? And I found that a lot of this decision, aside from cost and education and digital literacy, was shaped by how people navigated and negotiated what we could call like socio-spatial geographies within the city. So how they negotiated sort of their spatial presence, their sense of belonging within the city and the way that they moved through the city on an everyday basis. So, um, in the book, three of the sort of things that I talk about is, um, this differential mobility among lower income populations and among the populations that didn't sign up for Google fiber. So, um, without getting too into the sort of the technical details about, um, The contract for signing up uh, for Google Fiber, one of the things that Google Fiber was offering was fixed gigabit service to one's home. And when we think about relevance, that was one of the things that came up when I started talking to people about Google Fiber and why they didn't sign up was that that sort of connection wasn't relevant to them, that having this sort of steady, stable connection to one's home, that seemed very, very important. But their home was not always in the same place throughout a given year. So why would I invest in, um, in having this high speed fiber network to my home, which is the place where I'm signing up where I currently live when I might move several times within that year. And there were several restrictions that there were several sort of policies that made it restrictive for landlords to sign up at first or for renters to sign up. They had to sign up through their landlords. So most of the people living that I spoke to living East of truth were Renters, their residents changed very frequently. They had high mobility within the city in terms of um, maybe their kids didn't do their homework in the spaces in which they lived full time. Their kids would come home from school, be picked up by a relative, be doing their homework at a friend's or family's house. Maybe there was a time period where they were, you know, working. Um, at a fast food restaurant in terms of like trying to get work done, trying to get homework done at a fast food restaurant at the library after school program. So this idea of them seeing their mobility as um, kind of, making the network that's fixed to your home not make sense to them was really interesting to me it was about geographic presence and about uh navigation and about uh differential mobilities and how these weren't being factored into or thought about by the people who were designing this fiber optic network cable because another thing that came up when i was talking to people who didn't sign up was that um this was supposed to be Google Fiber for Communities. And the way that Google was seeing community as a place-based construction and the way that um, people who didn't sign up were seeing community, particularly lower income people, um, were seeing community was very, very different. So this idea that Google in their policy said you can't share Uh, signal. So if one household signs up, it's for this household. It's not something that could be shared across households. That was the sort of policy. And um, some of the people that I talked to said, well, this is not the way that we care about our community. If Google is kind of claiming that this is a service that by signing up, you're showing and supporting the Kansas Cityans you care about was one of the things that came out that this was actually not the way that we would support the people that we care about. We would want to share a network connection. We might share devices. We might share passwords. So there was this discrepancy between understandings of place-based community where, um, the people who didn't sign up, some of them were saying, well, um, you should be building a network that empowers the community to care for itself, that we should feel a sense of ownership over this network, which is exactly what Google, I think, was trying to do when they had this participatory model for signing up. But it wasn't being heard in the same way by people who lived in these neighborhoods that felt a different sort of sense of belonging or a sense of community that could come out of sharing signals or... Um, Sharing internet connection, there was sort of a mismatch there. And then also, I think importantly, this fixation on sending internet connection or building internet connection to a home in particular, to a house in particular, um, was something that turned some people off. So, um, people of color and low income Americans have historically had difficult and costly and precarious relationships with home ownership due to a legacy of social and economic discrimination. And the percentages of people of color who have a home in Kansas City um, are, or who rent, let's say, in Kansas City, not who have a home, is significantly higher than the region as a whole. So we have a a community or we have a city with a lot of renters, a lot of African-American and Hispanic and Native American renters. And um, we have a service coming in saying, well, we're going to network your household where you saw the representations of home and household that were being displayed were a suburban sort of white picket fence illustration of home with middle class or high upper middle class, uh, living room displays at Google fiber demos. And some of the people that I spoke with said that these representations of home and living spaces that were on display and that were sort of, um, talked about what felt alienating or unfamiliar to several of these participants. And all of these things combined were sort of cues were read as cues that this service was not for them. So this is something, yes, that can be mapped onto income maybe, but I think it also speaks to um, how geographic or sociospatial understandings of Kansas city were brought to bear on these very real decisions about, whether to opt into or sign up for a high-speed internet service, which people said that they recognized was very important to their livelihood, to their uh, kids doing their homework, to um, their own education and social mobility. But, The relevance issue was kind of wrapped up, not so much in that they didn't get why the network was important or would be beneficial to them, but was wrapped up in the fact that the way that they moved through the city or the way that they experienced a sense of place within the city was very different than what was proposed to them.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh excellent. It's it's uh it it's very complex and, and understanding, and I'm sure that's uh uh, something that uh was very important for you as you started to unload and make sense of all of the data that you had uh, available to you, yeah and uh so one of the things that uh I'm hearing is that uh the narrative and the way that something is promoted, the way that place is created is constructed is important uh, is important when taking into consideration the audience that is being included or excluded from the place. Mm-hmm. And um, so my next question would be agency. How much agency uh, was had by the, by the different members who were playing into, uh, into the creation, the construction of this, this uh, digital infrastructure in Kansas city.
2: Yeah. And I think this is a, I think that case city is actually a good, jumping off point to talk about kind of also larger things, larger sort of themes or understandings around agency in this book too. And I think each chapter talks both about top-down and bottom-up agency, and usually both simultaneously and kind of in conflict with one another. So I think there's a lot of sort of discussion about agency, if not by name, then in through illustration of different practices of resistance, different practices of participation or appropriation, and just these sort of um, different kind of power struggles that happen around different forms of of digital media. So I think in looking at the examples in the book, you'll see that I'm sort of reporting that people have a lot of agency in the construction of place. And all of the chapters address a different form of agency from distinct populations with within various positions of power, within various positions within social hierarchies. And agency can manifest in the form of a protest against creative placemaking endeavors or contributing as artists and community members to creative placemaking endeavors. So that's definitely a social production of place. Taking a selfie to curate the meaning of place in line with your identity or to express your identity to, to others or maybe agency manifests in building an entire city, right? A smart city built from scratch, or a fiber optic network is in the example that I just gave. So many different ways that agency kind of comes out in this construction of place. And I think one of the things that I rely on to think about agency in this book is drawing on like Henri Lefebvre and David Harvey and many other theorists who talk about Um, the right to the city. And this is a phrase that we've been seeing a lot more lately, and it's been used in a lot of different ways. Um, But the way that I'm thinking about the right to the city is very much in line with like Lefebvre's kind of original, maybe interpretation of what he means. And um, I'm thinking about it in terms of the centrality of citizens as agents or actors who can reclaim the city from processes of advanced capitalism or neoliberal urbanism for the collective good. So a demand for renewed access, let's say, to urban life and urban decision making on the part of the inhabitants or in part of the residents of the city. So the right to the city, um, in the way that Lefebvre talks about it, and in the way that David Harvey talks about it, at least in my interpretation, is like the right to an there's a beautiful quote about this and I, I I don't have it in front of me as I'm talking extemporaneously, but this sort of right to change ourselves by changing the city. And what they mean by that is exercising collective power to reshape urbanization and urban life. And it's for them, it definitely operates through this collective power, this coming together of urban inhabitants. And it's understood as a form of maybe citizen control or bottom up decision making, and it gives citizens or inhabitants a direct voice or direct access or a seat at the table in any decision that contributes to the production of urban space. So it's really quite radical in terms of or in relation to the way that we make decisions about place now in cities, which is often top down. Sometimes it's top down with a little bit of bottom up where you do invite a couple of community members to the table. Um, But they're thinking of a total reinvention of that system where the citizens sort of take control and bottom up decision making rules and the production of space. And my book and the examples that I talk about in my book is is not quite that radical. It's more about this combination and interfacing of top-down and bottom-up efforts at productive placemaking and what comes out of that, the tensions and challenges that come out of that. Um, But one thing that I think my book does that builds on the idea of the right to the city that I was just elaborating on is that my book starts to investigate maybe what we call the digital right to the city. And how urban inhabitants, um, you know, and this is urban inhabitants, not just bottom up, but top down. So those who participate maybe from the top down and bottom up, those who maybe resist or appropriate um, the city and digital media might exercise these urban politics or politics of reclamation of urban space through digital media And um, I think one example of this top-down, bottom-up that I mentioned already would be Google Fiber, but I think you see some of these um, challenges and some of these tensions of different sort of actors and culture with different access to cultural power brushing up against each other, where digital media becomes the interface or the vehicle for where these power struggles um, are readable to a researcher, or where they um kind of manifest these different sort of agencies manifest?
1: yeah, and I can't help to think but uh, uh but uh consumer use would have some level of feedback if, mm-hmm. if people who are using the digital uh, digital places would be giving some sort of a feedback and be at least have some agency in in blazing trails to future instead of the top down approach where it's the creation of digital digital place. It can be recreated through the, through the user group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this, uh, this uh, research, this book was, uh, was written uh, on the shoulders of giants and uh, (laughs) (laughs) who are some of these major scholars who, who you relied on in in creating your new, your new ideas?
2: Oh, wow. So, I mean, a lot. I think there's a lot of really great work sort of in this vein. And I mean, I mentioned a couple of theorists already, like Henri Lefebvre, whose work I'm a very big fan of. Um, And I kind of allude to in the subtitle, which I could talk about a little bit as well. But I mean, I think Henri Lefebvre, David Harvey, who I mentioned already, Michel de Certeau, Everyone is so taken by the chapter in the practice of everyday life, walking in the city, and I am as well. And I think scholars like David Morley, uh, Pierre Bourdieu and his theory of practice and social and cultural capital definitely come into play, especially in the chapter on location-based social media. Um, Scholars who take up an anthropological methodology to investigate cultural geographies of media, such as like Mary Gray, Jenna Burrell, Heather Horst, and there's so many others that um, do this as well. But I think also the field of maybe what we'd call digital geography or media geography is also growing and is really exciting to me. And I think that my work is in conversation with a lot of these studies of media in the city and mediated mobility in place. So some of the scholars that I refer to in the book, and then I'm definitely very heavily, sort of in conversation with and influenced by and admire, are like Lisa Parks, um, Shannon Mattern, Jason Farman, Lee Humphreys, Rowan Wilkin, Iona Dada, Kyra Wallace. And I mean, there's so, so many. Um, there's people who are working in the field of urban informatics and design, people like Laura Forlano, Marcus Foth, um, Scott McGuire, who wrote The Media City. And I mean, the list can kind of go on and on and on. Um, But I think it's a very exciting field right now or subfield or um, just sort of category of researchers who are doing and asking questions about digital geography. Um, I think also a lot of what I'm trying to think about here is building on um, some of the work that we've seen in recent years where people are coming up with ideas about, well, how do we talk about these hybrid spaces, these hybrid geographies? And we have people like, um, Rob Kitchen and Martin Dodge and, uh, Matthew Zook and, um, Mark Graham. So these geographers who are also engaging in conversations about, well, what, what sort of spaces are created and what sort of places are created, um, through the use and deployment of algorithms of digital technologies, writ large.
1: And, and virtual reality has come so far from uh, early, um, early video games on the computer mm-hmm. where where lives were being created, and people were walking around, um, living their life in a virtual, virtual reality. It's uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and then the whole augmented reality that is up and coming it it's it's uh definitely something that needs to be explored to see the to learn more about the impact that it's having on 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 humans
2: yeah definitely and i think when i started thinking about some of um this relationship between geographies and media and digital media in particular, a lot of the work that I was encountering was kind of what you started to describe about, you know, virtual reality or simulations of space and place. So looking at kind of representations of space and place on screens or behind screens and what some of the theorists that I mentioned were doing are doing the opposite where they're saying, hey, let's look at um, the role of digital media in everyday life in the production of space in place as it exists off screens, right? So it's kind of the reverse of that relationship. Instead of looking at um, simulations of space or simulated spaces, they're looking at um, the way that media is shaping and reshaping the way that we interact with space and place in everyday life
1: and in in class today one of the things that i mentioned is that uh it, is media standalone or is it uh a ratification of what is taking place in everyday life it's it's almost as if media is informed by rea- reality everyday life while we everyday life is also consecutively informed by what is watched on tv during early years of uh of socialization mm-hmm. Yeah. So feedback so loops, feedback loop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the joy. That's the uh, love that I had for reading your book. The digital city is, is the fact that it is uh, uh, very much polysemic and that it can be studied in multiple ways and, and that it uh, is all inclusive in the different disciplines. Do you see this uh, to be similar? I, I know that in our email back and forth, when we first explored the possibility of conducting this interview, uh, you were talking about well my my background is not in sociology well, while I understand it and I dabble in it do you, do you think that that uh, adds value to uh, to this area of research yeah
2: i think that's a really
1: interesting question and
2: yeah in our email back and forth i i thought it was interesting i think i had brought up like hey you know i'm this is new books in sociology but i'm not I'm not really a sociologist. That's not where my training is from. I mean, you mentioned that I got my PhD in media and cultural studies. I got it from the Department of Communication Arts at Wisconsin in a program that was called Media and Cultural Studies. And I think maybe I took one sociology class as an undergrad potentially, but um, I think there are... Kind of differences, some differences between a cultural studies approach, which I think I'm doing here, and uh, maybe pure sociological, I don't want to say pure, but um, maybe more of a traditional sociological approach. Um, but I think there's also a lot of overlaps. And I think that maybe generally speaking, and I'd be curious to hear your reaction to some of the things that I'm going to Positive about sociology, but I think that generally maybe sociology tends to focus more on institutions and organizational patterns or components of place. And like, I mean, some of the things that we might think about there are like the neighborhood or neighborhood associations, which coincidentally I'm working on right now. So I don't know if this is making my case for how different we are, but things like maybe civic participation, civic mobilization, local government, um, and maybe collectives, attention to collectives, um, or collective experiences sort of based on demographic, demographic populations, uh, boundaried communities. And I think one thing that maybe sociology does less of and cultural study does more of is, um, like a focus on something like subjective perceptions of experience or the self in relationship to lived experiences of space, place, placemaking. Um, And more on the symbolic or the representational and also cultural studies tends to veer toward the humanities in a way that um, some scholars, some cultural studies scholars continue to focus on texts and critical readings and representations. So representations of places within and through media, sort of like what I was talking about before, and even focus on the city as a text. To be read like a script. And Disserteau actually kind of says this explicitly in his writing and the practice of everyday life, where he talks about the city as a text that can be read and also performed. And this is how he kind of distinguishes space from place, is that, um, and he flips it a little bit where he says um that place is uh or spaces, pre- practice, place. So this idea that the city is the script, and then anything we do within it is the performance or the acting out of it. And I think that these slightly different directions and approaches um, to questions of place also configure and explore power struggles slightly differently. I think that both cultural studies and sociology are are kind of invested in studying power struggles, but I think they kind of the object of inquiry might be the same even, but the way that maybe we approach things are slightly differently. So maybe sociology focusing on power relations within place as contributing to social or political transformation, sometimes writ large, um, and the social transformation of places or the social structures that make place. And cultural studies may be trying to understand social hierarchies And dominant ideologies in meaning making, or like symbolic and representational constructions of places, and how places are perceived affectively and what they come to mean within popular culture. And I think, like I said, kind of earlier, that there's often overlaps in the types of questions that a sociologist and cultural studies scholar would ask about space and place and placemaking, especially as they overlap with things like identity and inequity, which is something I'm very invested in talking about and I think comes through in almost every chapter of the book. Um, But questions about experiences and constructions of place through lenses of like gender, race, class, ethnicity, ability, that we're both interested in this. And our efforts to denaturalize placemaking or um, something that's become a little bit cliche in cultural studies is this idea of um, making the invisible visible. Right. But that's all about denaturalization as well. And I think sociologists do that, too. I think they're invested in that as well. But our approaches and methodologies could also be very, very different. So you'd be hard pressed to find a cultural studies scholar, I think, that's asking questions that could be answered quantitatively or through like statistical analysis alone. But I think you might be more apt to find that in sociology, um, that the questions would beg some sort of statistical analysis. And I think that my work and my perspective actually often bridges the two, Um, these two approaches, the social science and humanities. And I'm interested. And I think one of the bridges there is because I'm very interested in doing empirical studies of how placemaking, and you could think about that in terms of like how agency or the agency to produce place is enacted as well as reading the outcomes, artifacts and like symbolic nature of this agency within popular culture. So I'm still very invested in popular culture, but I'm more interested in practice than texts, which I think kind of takes me a little bit out of the cultural studies in the traditional way. Um, I think often if you look at my work, a cultural studies scholar might say, well, where is the text? Although that's not necessarily the case for all cultural studies scholars, but I, I move more towards practice than text and the politics or resistance within everyday experiences of place in digital media, which I think I approach more from a cultural studies perspective than um, a sociological one, but I do think I bridge them too. I sort of mix them up. And as you said, like I'm drawing from all these different bodies of literature, um, some humanities, some social science, some art. Um, so I think what's lingering in my work too, is that I have, and this is like a critique of cultural studies as well, where people have said, oh, cultural studies, they just do over-politicized readings of everyday life or over-politicized readings of popular culture. And I think I still have a bit of that in my work for sure, but I think they're appropriately politicized. I don't think they're overly done, but I do look at the sort of politics of um, power and the politics of place and the performance of place, which I think also borders on these sort of representational readings as I look at the artifacts that are produced through the agency and not just the agency itself,
1: and I think it's necessary for situations to be understood differently across the disciplines, and to uh, not work in uh, in separate wheelhouses, but to have these conversations across the discipline in order to make uh, in order to make uh, the conversations uh, more valuable, more interesting, but also to challenge each other in. Uh, in creating a smarter and more intelligent understanding of the everyday life around us.
2: Yeah, definitely. I agree. And I was actually really happy to be asked to contribute to the new books in sociology in particular, because I think I do speak to um, scholars and readers within that discipline as well.
1: And we, and we, Meet a broader audience by by uh, working on things like this across the discipline, so I, I appreciate your work and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing reading your publications. Oh, thanks. Great. Well, unfortunately, we're at that point in time where um, we have to get going. But one last question that I would like to ask is, what are you working on now? Oh, so um
2: Quite a few things, actually. Um, So I finished this book. This book just came out in January and have another book coming out. I believe now it's in June of this year called Smart Cities. And that's with MIT Press um, as part of the Essential Knowledge Series. So it's a shorter book that has sort of uh, aims towards a crossover audience, um, not just within academia, but also uh, practitioners and um, non-specialists as well. And um, I have a special issue of journal that I'm co-editing with Erica Paulson called Digital Placemaking. It's for Convergence, the journal Convergence, um, which I'm really excited about. And I'm also co-editing an anthology right now. It's the Rutledge Companion to Media and the City uh, with Brendan Crudell and Erica Stein. So we're getting that together and Um, Right now, I'm sitting in my office at the Hall Center for the Humanities at um, the University of Kansas, where I have a fellowship this semester where I'm going to start working on a new book about dark fiber networks in the U.S. And I think maybe exclusively in the U.S., maybe abroad, but I'm still sort of conceptualizing that project. But um, I'm excited to be focusing on these networks. And I don't know if you're familiar with dark fiber networks are what they are, but there's millions of miles of fiber optic cable that are buried underground in the US, both in rural and urban environments that were built dark, they were built off, and they're sort of laying in wait to be turned on. And I think I saw a statistic from like 2001, maybe it was, where uh, there's like 35 million miles of fiber under the ground in the US, and 90% of them are dark. So it's sort of a project that I'm still conceptualizing, but i um, thinking that if we look at these digital infrastructures and do a cultural geography of dark fiber networks, that it might tell us something that helps us rethink um, maybe the history of digital connectivity as we know it, or supply and demand structures or political economic models around fiber optic networks, but also the way that we think about the, um, the potential for internet c- connectivity in the U S and maybe bridge some of these divides between the way we think of rural spaces as completely disconnected, which is a myth, but also has some reality to it as being on the rural side of the digital divide and cities as um, spaces with this sort of hyper connectivity and um, might help us think about sort of digital access and inequity differently. If we think about networks that are built off or that remain off and What can that tell us about what sort of activism we could uh, mobilize around uh, internet access and supply? So we'll see where that project goes. I'm still very much thinking it through, but um, I'm excited to be working on it now.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking of geographic mobility and just how the United States was established and how we continue to see migration patterns here in the United States, moving largely to the, Uh, West Coast or uh, uh, East Coast with the majority of the population living in that area in the Midwest being, I wouldn't say underpopulated, but there are fewer people definitely in the Midwest region of the United States.
2: Well, there's also this connotation of the Midwest as a flyover region or that it's a place where things happen elsewhere. And I really, I think in a lot of my work, try and reclaim that sense of place for the Midwest that there's actually a lot of really interesting histories and stories to be told about digital connectivity, digital inequity, but also, you know, digital access and digital experiences in the Midwest. So some of the cities in my work that I focus on are cities like Kansas City. And in this project, I'm going to be looking at cities like Nashville and Jacksonville and um, maybe Denver or St. Louis. And they're cities that when you think about high tech infrastructure, or you think about digital connectivity, you might not be thinking of these spaces. You might instead think about, oh, why not city San Francisco or New York or something? So I think that um, that's definitely something I'm thinking about geographically. Well. And
1: having an understanding of this digital infrastructure can help uh, replace the uh, the Midwest.
2: Yes, and I love your use of that term. So yeah. thank you. I think you're I think you're right.
1: Well, thank you again, and I look forward to reading your upcoming book, Smart City, as well as uh, the other uh, the other projects that we have working with other scholars in cultural studies. And uh, have a great rest of your week, yeah, you too. thanks so much.